Hey everyone, today I'm going to tell you about a rather fashionable weapon of war. I have a story about the Confederate Air Corps and their airships made of silk dresses, or so the legend goes. It is a tragic and twisted story from the beginning all the way to the very sad end. These balloons seem to be tinged by a curse. It was back in 1862, in a pre-dawn light, when Savannah Gas Plant Supervisor James Smedberg braced himself against the wall of a brick well, and he was there to shut off what he called was an intolerable gas flow. And when he did that, he found his hand resting on the still, lifeless face of a man who was suspended from the side of the pit where the valve was located. Smedbird said the man was hanging by the jaws between a flange on one side and the brickwork on the other. In all, two men were dead. Another lay at the bottom of a 24-foot dry well that was used for running gas lines and oil lines for the facility. Around the spot, other plant workers staggered and fell across the workyard like drunken chickens around a barnyard moonshine take. Nearby, a short rope held the partially inflated gazelle, an experimental Confederate observation balloon tied to a winch that was staked to the ground of the gasworks terrace. Hmm. You know, I guess we all know about spy balloons today after we find that the Chinese have been flying over us for several years. Well, that's what the Yankees and Confederates felt like. The day was supposed to be a festive occasion with bleachers from military and city bigwigs, but then all hell broke loose. I'm J.D. Bias. Welcome to History by GPS, where you travel through history and culture, GPS location by GPS location. Remember, the other GPS locations mission to this story will be found on historybygps.com or on the show notes of your podcast provider, Apple, Google Podcasts, others. This is part of three interesting historical events that happened years apart at exactly the same location. And that location is, got your pencil, 32.078098 degrees by negative 81.082878 degrees. Now the other two episodes were the Don't Tax Me Bro story from a couple of weeks ago, and the Yankee in the Garden episode. So check them out if you haven't. you hear about this guy Smedberg mentioned in one of them. Okay, back to the balloon that had a gas problem. And at my age, I, boy, I know that feeling. Now, I will tell you that I had come across this story about the Confederate balloon in my studies about the American Civil War. And I will tell you that I am not a scholar of this war by any means. There are plenty of people out there who know a lot more than I do. But I am a scholar of the places I've lived and things like the Revolutionary and Civil War and how it affected them, especially Savannah. I've been doing it for 30 years. But this incident came to my attention almost by accident. When I was going through old newspaper accounts of things that happened in the area around Savannah and specifically the area called Trustee's Garden, I came across one or two sentences uh, in a notice in a Richmond, Virginia newspaper. 
And that said that on May 29, 1862, two men died in an incident at the Savannah Gas Works. That's all it said. So I set it aside and pretty much forgot about it. Later, I was researching the Savannah Gas Works and found an article written by James Smedberg about how it was necessary to use pine wood to make gas during the Civil War because of the scarcity of coal. In it, he talked about the deaths of the two men and that it happened when they were inflating a balloon for the military. It became evident that the only balloon possible at that time was the first gas balloon built by the Confederate Army to use to spy on Union forces. Okay, back to business. I imagine that a gas leak was evident when Superintendent Smedberg arrived at the Savannah Gas Works just before sunrise at 4 o'clock on May 29th, early in the morning. He must have smelled the fumes before he stepped onto the property. You see, coal and wood gas give off a putrid odor like the oil that's used in the cracks of the sidewalks or creosote piers and telephone poles, if you remember those. It's unlike today's odorless natural gas, which needs the added chemical mercaptan to give it a scent to tell people the fumes are escaping. Now, around the South, President Abraham Lincoln's Union blockade created a shortage of coal for the Confederacy. Residential and industrial products like coal supplies could not be shipped into the city, nor out of, for that matter. So the buoyancy for lifting the Confederate Army balloon gazelle required gas that was cooked from southern yellow pine wood. Some reported that wood gas was thicker and a better burning than standard coal, but both forms have that similar smell. As for the gasworks crew, it was time for the morning shift change when Smedberg circled the building to get into the holding tank area on the terrace. That's where the fumes emanated. The pungent, nauseating stench would have socked Smedberg in the nose like a punch during a Saturday night boozer if you know what I mean. He later wrote that several plant workers were, quote, badly asphyxiated. Now, two Irish immigrants, Martin Brannan and William Harper, they were dead. One had broken his neck in a fall down the maintenance well and could not be removed because of the heavy flow of gas from the pipe that was supposed to be filling the balloon. The stokers, the guys that work the redoubt ovens, cook the coal. Ordinarily, they're tough and hard-as-nails men, but, but they were in a panic. Their eyes were blood-red and burning from the fumes. Some lay on the coal-tar-stained ground with trances like they were gazing at the stars. Others stumbled dazed into the morning light. They all feared that the gas would drift into the retort house and ignite the fired ovens and blow them across the city's eastern slope. Another big-hearted Irishman, as Smedberg defined him, had been fired by Smedberg a couple of days before. Well, without hesitation, the man reached in, helped close the valve, and dislodged the man who was hanging from the pipe in the wall. 
Then, making a rope sling, the Irishman slipped it under his arms and climbed down the pipes while his former boss fed the line. Then they hauled the other dead man to the surface. Then the superintendent's attention turned to the others. The members of the dazed and intoxicated crew were medicated. The medication? Whiskey. At that time in history, it was a standard remedy for just about everything that ails you. Ah, the 19th century medical science. Where did it go? While the inflation of the balloon resumed, Smedbird's anger fumed until he became furious. See, the shift foreman who had worked through the night had disobeyed him. His orders were that the pressure of the gas was to stay constant and not be changed. But the foreman had made an uneducated judgment and the control valve had failed under the pressure he applied. When the deadly billowing gas started flooding the workyard, the foreman did not have the courage to shut it off and the emergency erupted. Swedberg claimed that the incident started in disobedience and ended, as he wrote, in murder and almost suicide. That was because there was another shutoff valve within two feet of the muzzle of the pipe. So the result, in concise 21st century lingo, the foreman screwed up and Smedberg fired him. Now, a guy named Charles Seaver was the balloon's pilot and builder. Well, he was devastated by the news. As in many Victorian narratives, Smedberg concluded his recount with a moral and a reason. He said, the tragedy teaches the common mind that discipline is good, but the pilot, Mr. Seaver, was the last I would have suspected of superstition. He told me that it happened all because it was on a Friday. Now, soon after that, the heroic big-hearted Irishman, the one who climbed into the fume-filled pit, he was rehired by Smedberg's boss, Francis Willis, the president of the Savannah Gaslight Company. Smedberg suspected that Willis's action came out of fear of a lawsuit from the wives of the deceased who might, to quote him, enforce exemplary pensions from the company. He figured, like today, somebody was going to sue somebody over the incident and good publicity could only help. One can deduce that the two men were among the many Irish who had arrived in Savannah over the past two decades, many of them from Wexford, Ireland. Now, at the beginning of the gassing incident, the area was cleaned and cleared and the bodies were whisked away and the unknowing public arrived, watched, and was awestruck by the show of the Confederate military aircraft. Enthralled by the spectacle, Few people knew about the deaths. Bleachers on the grounds nearby were full. Dignitaries came, and anticipations of all onlookers were high. The balloon was a hit. The South, and especially Savannah, had built their first Confederate States gas observation balloon, and it would help in the fight against the Northern aggressors. To the two men who flew, aeronauts, that was Charles Seaver and Confederate Captain Edward Lawton. Their experience and view would have been remarkable. When the winch holding the balloon to the ground was released, the two men rose above the crowd. To the north was Willink's Wharf on the water's edge at Trustee's Garden, where the CSS Georgia stood in 
the initial construction stages. The Ladies Gunboat Association had raised $115,000 to aid in the war, and an equivalent of about $385 million in the year 2021. The history-making aircraft rose a few yards away from that spot in a tethered flight, and it was floating above Alvin Miller's Iron Foundry. That's where the iron for the CSS Georgia was forged and cast. With the feet of a bit more line, they were over the rice fields near the city's eastern boundary. Theirs was a view taken in by few men, and it was usually Seaver tending the gas valve when they did. Toward the ocean, they could see the Savannah River as it twisted leftward, making the bend at Fort Fathom Hole and Fort Jackson and Fort Lee. Directly to the east, billow-like waves of trees outlined Whitmarsh and Wilmington Islands. The islands were just below Fort Pulaski's outline, which overlapped the view of Tybee Island and the Atlantic Ocean beyond. To the south, the rise of Trussie's Garden Bluff was marked by a line of wooden and brick buildings that housed the ironworking Kehoe, Monahan, and Rook families along Broughton Street, all of which would own iron foundries in the near future. Below, the river shined and glinted flashes of light as the sun slowly rose over the mouth of Savannah. Oh, by the way, check out the uh, GPS coordinates on our website at historybygps.com. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which includes the spot where this event happened. While you're there, check out our merchandise. We have t-shirts, cups, and other Savannah-specific products that uh, would make a great gift you know, to someone else or, or to yourself. So check it out. Now back to the balloon and the aeronauts that were floating up above the crowd there at Trustee's Garden. Down below these guys, they would have seen a glimmering ribbon of water igniting a show of line streak reflections. It was flanked by trees along the shoreline beside the marsh grass and Savannah's bustling wharves all surrounded by a flat fallow fields just outside the city's eastern boundary. Flying in a balloon, the, the sounds are muffled. There, while they were in that silent space, they would have heard an occasional boat whistle, the call of birds, the droning murmur of the crowd down below. It is an eerily interesting experience. I flew several years ago working for a newspaper, flew over the the hills around Livermore, California. If you ever get a chance to go fly in a balloon, try it. It is fantastic. Now, Seaver, the pilot of this balloon, he would have tested the lines and the valves of the balloon while Captain Lawton examined the fort in the far distance. That's Fort Pulaski. The flight was short, though, where the Yankee troops surveyed and noted the gas checks were undoubtedly open with a few jerks and on the control ropes, and the mission was over. Now, Superintendent Smedberg, he was unimpressed. He concluded his balloon account by writing, the balloon was filled, went up, and presently came down in the tender mud of a neighboring rice field. And that was it. To him, the test remained merely a test and nothing of note. Now, earlier in the war, the Confederacy tried to make hydrogen gas, which was more efficient form of buoyancy. But blockade-induced shortages of material dictated otherwise. 
The chemicals for portable wagon haul generators of hydrogen, as were used by the Union balloonists, could not be imported, and the finances of the South prevented research for that investment. So the Gazelle's virgin ascent was forced to utilize streetlight gas, the only location and source of the lighter-than-air property available in the southeast was at Tr Savannah's Gaslight Company uh, on the works at Trustee's Garden. Now, Smedberg mentions the flight and the deaths of Brandon and Harper in a recollection 20 or more years later. The Northerner Gas Plant Superintendent is described in a recollection by Union POW Frederick Schmidt. He said he was a born Scandinavian and who was at heart a union man. He was a kind personality, but was direct in his description and operation of the plant, apparently. Again, you'll learn about Schmidt the POW in another episode on this GPS location, same spot. Now the lighter of air, silk-enclosed bubble of streetlight gas would come to be referred to as the silk dress balloon. That was because the union blockade Lincoln's Anaconda plan had created a shortage of fabric, so bundles of dress silk in various patterns was collected and fabricated into the aircraft. With it was whichever style they could find, it could maybe polka dots, maybe stripes, whatever, floral plaids. Then during the first battle flight of the balloon, Confederate General James Longstreet made a tongue-in-cheek comment to the press and that created the nickname. He joked that the Confederacy had collected silk dresses from around the South for its fabrication. Many in the press took him seriously and they printed it, and the name stuck. The balloon's pilot, Professor Charles Seaver, as they called him, he was an interesting guy. He was a tall and muscular risk-taker and had labored for weeks to sew and fabricate the gondola of the craft as well as the envelope. Edward Cheeves, a teenager from Savannah, helped him construct the craft under the direction of Edward's uncle, South Carolina native Captain Langdon A. Cheeves of the Confederate Army. The Cheeves boys were from a powerful South Carolina family. Many of the men were serving in the Confederate Army. Now I'll warn you, the ruling class of the South and the North was a mass of interconnected families who held the power positions, kind of like now. For better or worse, the American Civil War was a family squabble. And from here on in the story, you'll almost need a roster of the players. That captain who was in charge of the balloon's construction was the son of a lawyer named Langdon Cheeves. He had died a few years earlier in 1857. It was after a successful political career. He had been the Attorney General of South Carolina, a U.S. Congressman, the Speaker of the House of the U.S. House of Representatives, and the President of the Bank of the United States under U.S. President James Madison. See, a legacy of strength and leadership in the family was paramount in the southern states especially. Service was a family calling. Young Edward Cheese would hold the aide-de-camp cadet title and he would serve under Savannah General Alexander R. Lawton. Not officially military, Edward was the son of Langdon Cheeves' brother, Dr. Richard Cheeves, also of Savannah, 
who is spending the war in Charleston perfecting incendiary bombs to hurl at Union forces. So the balloon project was most likely a concoction of the firebombing doctor, who then relayed the order to his brother and then to the 18-year-old in Savannah. The craft was built in Savannah, following the specifications dictated by Charles Seaver, the civilian aeronaut, who was, ironically, a Pennsylvania boy. Seaver was well known in Savannah and the Southeast. His flights had been popular attractions for spectators in the area for many years. He was also known to have crashed several balloons during the hazardous learning curve in this evolution of the infancy of the transport movement. One instance was when he started a flight in his balloon for a city outside of the Chatham Artillery Armory on Wright Square. Uh, this was two years before the Gazelle flight. The Chatham Artillery Building sat on the northeastern truss lot in Wright Square that is now part of the Tomochichi Federal Building. Now, as a tidbit of trivia, a few months earlier, the ballroom at that location where part of the silk dress balloon was constructed, it was used by showman P.T. Barnum to house his menagerie in Savannah. Barnum, a New Yorker, pulled out when the war started. Now, after Seaver's liftoff in the balloon, the Four City, he quickly realized that the day was not ideal for a flight. A newspaper recorded, Taking advantage of the slight lull in the wind, he ascended very rapidly. At three minutes after five o'clock, he was bearing away to the northeast and gradually ascending in the hope of meeting a current that would carry him more westward, end quote. Well, Seaver ascended several hundred feet and determined that his course and all other air currents would take him over the Atlantic Ocean. So when he released gas, he started to descend, that is, gas from the balloon. We just want to be accurate with that. So when he released the gas, at a lower altitude, he crossed another air current that pulled him sharply toward the ocean. He told his untested co-pilot, a guy named Dalton, that they were going into the water. Then Dalton yelled to him, for God's sake, man, land in the woods if you can. Well, Seaver was mildly amused since it was the first show of emotion from the trainee. Otherwise, Seaver said Dalton had preserved his coolness and exhibited the nerve that few men can boast of possession. See, the pilot knew that such a tree landing would likely kill them. A water landing was their only choice. Fifteen miles away, they came down in Hilton Head, South Carolina's Calabogie Sound. There, the wind dragged them for about an hour. Then Seaver, chest deep in water, fought to control the balloon-turned sail, and finally the breeze pulled them in close to the shoreline in Hilton Head. A planter named George Savage watched from the shore. A newspaper reported that while the men were in the water, one of the valve ropes became tangled and the, the other one broke. This meant that Seaver had no means for controlling the balloon. With the combined efforts of Mr. Savage, his slaves, and the aeronauts, there was no way to hold a monster of a balloon. Well, the craft was lost. It broke away from its crewmen and darted aloft, according to the newspaper, like a projectile, and then in one moment 
more it was hurling away and was carried off over the sea. Savage rescued the soaked and freezing Seaver and his companion to his home and helped them recuperate. Now, a little about Seaver. When the war started, the Pennsylvania-born man offered his services to the Confederate Army, who promptly rejected the proposal. Newfangled gadgets were not welcome. In 1862, after seeing the Union Army balloons flown by Thaddeus Lowe across the lines of battle, Brigadier General Thomas Drayton, commander of the 4th Military District of South Carolina, he called for Seaver's balloon skills to be utilized for the cause. Well, we know that for the Southern cause, Seaver's balloon for a city was no longer available. A casualty of experimentation lost in the aforementioned waters of Hilton Head. And by that time, it was probably somewhere over Siberia, half a world away. So Drayton ordered a new aircraft constructed. Seaver and the young Chiefs, they designed the aircraft while over in South Carolina, Captain Langdon Chiefs worked on battlefield logistics. In the armory building off Wright Square and also in the St. Andrews building on Broughton and Jefferson Street, the two men stretched the bolts of random patterned cloth and colors and made the canopy for the balloon. Seamstresses were hired to sew the material into the balloon envelope body and they worked in those two locations. When complete, the fabric was coated with a varnish made from melted gutta percha. That's a material that came from the rubber shock absorbers used on the railroad cars. Today, gutta percha is used to fill teeth after root canals, so I'm told. Now, real quickly, again, check out our store on our website, historybygps.com. You'll find the merchandise that highlights the events and places talked about in other episodes, perhaps this one, as well as Savannah-centric t-shirts, mugs, cups, and other things. Oh, and please like or follow or subscribe, depending on which platform you're listening on. And if you have any comments or information for other listeners, please leave a note in the comments section, and I would appreciate it if you do. Now... Another Confederate balloon flew before the silk dress craft. It was a hot air balloon that was used during earlier observations, but it had little success. It was dropped from service. So you have to keep the hot air coming in, and once you left the ground in those days, you didn't have a way of adding the propane gas we use today. So it went up, looked around a little bit, and came right straight back down. Now, in Savannah, with the successful test of the Gazelle, Seaver received a brevet rank of captain in the Confederate Army. He immediately collected the balloon and got on board the next train to Virginia. Among the wooded, rolling hills of Enrico County, or is it Henrico County? I'm not from there. During the Seven Days Battle at Richmond, that was July 1st, 1862, the Confederate balloon floated over the James River, riding on street light gas from Richmond's Fulton Gas Works. Now, that old plant is still there. It's not operable, but you can go see it. It was tethered to a railroad car, and it rolled to the battle lines and then back to the gas works to replenish the fuel. 
As the newly appointed commander of the Army of the Northern Virginia, General Robert E. Lee chose Major Edward Porter Alexander to oversee the flight and observe the enemy positions. Alexander would later move to Savannah and become the president of the Central of Georgia Railway. Now, he recalled the incident and the balloon in his memoir. He said, I saw the Battle of Gaines Mill from it and signaled information for the movement of Henry W. Slocum's division across the Chickahominy to reinforce General Fitz John Porter. Balloon flights went up daily, and when the enemy came too close, the inflated balloon would be carried down the river and flights made from the deck of a boat. Now, though other airmen shared a sense with Alexander, only he and Seaver were chosen for induction into the Georgia Aviation Hall of Fame in 2006. Another crewman that should have been considered would relive the events almost 50 years after the forming and disbanding of the Confederate Air Force. That man was Adolphus Morse, another Pennsylvanian who had joined the Chatham Artillery. He wrote of his experience as a lieutenant under Captain Charles Seaver, saying that Seaver was ordered to prepare the aircraft for government use to, quote, with sufficient lifting power to carry three men besides ballast. Morse remembered seeing Seaver in Savannah at the artillery hall before he was assigned to help with the gazelle. He said, I remember to have seen him, but little did I think I was going with the balloon to the field. He wrote, it was months later that he was ordered to Charleston to assist in the Secessionville fight. At 19 years old, Morris was considered a reliable artilleryman and a good judge of distance. With that qualification, he found himself assigned to assist Seaver in South Carolina. See, he could look at the site and direct the artillery. He wrote that they had six young men as helpers in the group, and it included uh, Private Clement Saucy, who was also in the Chatham Artillery. He said they remained in Charleston for two or three weeks and then were ordered to Richmond. In a short time, they were at the front. He said, we secured board near the gas works there in Richmond, and then our fun and frolic was over, for we begun to work in earnest. Now, Major Alexander, the one that went up in the balloon, you may remember him from the movie Gettysburg. He was a red-hatted uh, artilleryman that was giving cover for Pickett's charge. Same guy. Well, he received orders from General Lee to command the balloon unit, and for good reason. Alexander had graduated from West Point in 1857. He was an artilleryman, and he could judge distances. So also, he served in the American West where he worked with uh, a unit under a guy named Major Albert J. Meyer. That's the guy that created Morse code using flags, the semaphore system, the wigwag system. That code was used by the military. Well, it's still used in some communication today, especially during World War II. You'll see the guys out there with the flags. Now, there in Richmond... The balloon was positioned on a hill where they had a good view of Union General McClellan's army. Across the battlefield, about five miles away, the Yankees were flying a spy balloon on the Confederate troops. 
McClellan's army had resisted all of Lee's efforts up to that time, but on Friday, but on Friday, the balloonists could see the movements of their enemy and knew that something was about to happen. The Union balloonist signaled to someone on his right, so Alexander sent the information to the ground below. Stonewall Jackson and his men made a forced march and immediately attacked McClellan's right, and in a short time the Union general's line was broken and they began to fall back. It was the beginning of the terrible destruction of life that stopped the Union army and ended the seven days fight in the front around Richmond. The Union army retreated, continuing to fight over the hills and streams of 20 miles of countryside, and McClellan lost the battle and would eventually be relieved of his command by President Lincoln. Now, another side note, McClellan retaliated against Lincoln and ran against him in the 1864 election. Well, McClellan lost. Later, the crew moved down the James River to find a Union general's army. One advantage the Confederate crew had lies in the positioning of the river, the railroad, and the gas works. The tracks run along the James River between the gas works and the water, giving the crew an option of two transport methods. At the gas plant, a tugboat assumed the role of the platform and carrier of the aircraft. Morse explained that they took the balloons on board uh, the tugboat teaser and started down the river. And about 20 miles down, they made an ascension and found the Army of the Union between uh, Chickahominy and the James Rivers. But, according to him, owing to the obstinance of the boat's captain, the teaser ran aground. It lay helplessly in a sandbar, and it took fire. Shot and shell smashed the cabin, and a death blow landed when the cannonball pierced the boiler. A loud explosion ripped the deck off the tug's port side. Then a Union gunboat crew boarded and captured the defenseless boat. All of the crew escaped and returned to Richmond, hopping in the water and swimming away. And then they received orders to return to Savannah and build a new balloon. It was to be called the Nimbus. It was 36 feet in diameter, raised 46 feet above the valve board, which is the bottom of the balloon, and 56 feet overall with the gondola, and it was made of 980 yards of dress silk. The total weight was about 888 pounds. They bought every yard of silk they could find in Richmond, Savannah, and Charleston, which was over a thousand yards. After it was built, they took the balloon to Charleston and made observations from the deck of vessels and determined the positions of the Union Army off Morris Island and directed fire to a number of their gunboats. After that battle, the balloon corps disbanded. Morse was reassigned and reduced to the rank of private. He said, We were in the service 18 months when I was ordered back to my company, which was at the time on James Island. After this, I pretty much had a rough end to the war, which was occurring in North Carolina. What had happened was a fateful end for that balloon corps. Secured at Fort Johnson at the mouth of Charleston Bay, foul weather tore the balloon loose, and it drifted away into the stratosphere and was gone. Fortunately, no one was on board. 
Morse was the last reconnaissance pilot to ascend in a Confederate balloon. And it was during the first battle for Fort Wagner. The curse of the silk dress balloon started with the deaths of gaswork workers Brandon and Harper, and it continued through other participants. Captain Edward Payson Lawton, the brother to aid General Lawton, he's the first one to go up in a balloon with Seaver over Trustee's Garden. He did not survive the war. His death was seven months before the second Savannah-built balloon, the Nimbus, flew over Fort Wagner outside of Charleston. The misfortune of the balloons would conclude with other deaths. On July 10, 1863, there at Fort Wagner near Charleston, Captain Langdon A. Cheeves Sr. was described as being distraught. Remember, he was the military supervisor who oversaw both balloons' construction operations. The war had weighed heavily on him and his cousins and the Chiefs family. One year prior, Langdon's young nephew, Cadet Edward Cheeves, who had helped Seaver during the construction of the first balloon, well, he was killed at the Battle of Gaines Mill during the first days of the Gazelle's use in battle. Early in the fight, while riding by the side of General Lawton, his horse was shot from under him. Lawton describes the incident, saying, quote, he promptly rose to his feet, announced to me his safety and his intention of keeping up with the brigade on foot. He followed on toward the left, where the 35 and 38th were so hotly pressed. And while gallantly pursuing the line of his duty, he fell pierced through the heart with a rifle ball. Now, Mary Chestnut of South Carolina noted in her diary on July 1st, 1882, if you watch Ken Burns' series on the Civil War, she was mentioned often. She wrote, No more news. It has settled down into this. The general battle and the decisive battle has to be fought yet. Edward Cheeves, the only son of John Cheeves, was killed. According to Chestnut's journal, Edward's sister kept crying. She said, Oh, mother, what shall we do? Edward is killed. But the mother sat dead still. White as a sheet, never uttered a word or shed a tear. Then Chestnut, who had seen so much of the effects of war, questioned, Are our women losing the capacity to weep? The father came today, Mr. John Cheeves. He was making infernal machines in Charleston to blow up Yankee ships. And he grieved with the group. Now back at Fort Wagner, Captain Langdon Cheeves, he received the news that his sister's son, Captain William Thompson Haskell, had died on July 2nd at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. William was revered by his family and by his troops. On the 10th, Langdon received news in the early morning that his other nephew, William's brother, Captain Charles T. Haskell Jr., had also been killed while helping repel a Union amphibious attack near him. Flanked by northern soldiers, uh, his position was overrun, and he died a short distance from Langdon's bunker. The next day, Langdon was sitting in his quarters, overwhelmed with grief at the news of his family tragedies, when he heard the battle restarting. They said he jumped up and ran to the ramparts of the battery. Shrapnel from the very first shell fired from a Union gunboat exploded near him and killed him instantly. 
In the same time frame, another family member, Captain Joseph Cheeves Haskell, who was a brother of Charles and Thomas, well, he was wounded. He lost his arm and shoulder at Gaines Mill after the ascension of the balloon. Now that fighting where Captain Langdon Cheeves died hits its high at the top of historic battles in the American Civil War. There, on July 18th, another Union advance attempted to overrun Battery Wagner. In the attacking force was the famous Union 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. It was made up of black soldiers led by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. If you saw the movie Glory, that 54th Massachusetts, as you'll remember from the movie, it failed to take the fortification that Langdon Cheeves engineered and helped construct a few months earlier. That movie, Glory, you'll remember, starred Morgan Freeman and young Denzel Washington. By the way, that was filmed in Savannah. The Cheeves and Haskell families paid dearly during the short life of the Confederate Balloon Corps. After that time, both the Union and Confederate balloon usage quickly disappeared, but their mark on history still remains. The Confederate Air Force was born in 1862 and died the next year, but it holds a first in the records. Barges were the watercraft that held balloons used by the Union Army. They were pushed or pulled by steamboats. The Confederate Balloon Gazelle's carrier was a tugboat named Teaser, as we said, and it had a short-lived career, but gained the distinction of being the first motorized aircraft carrier in North America. After the teaser's capture, the deflated gazelle was taken to the Union Army's chief aeronaut, Thaddeus Lowe, who chopped the canopy into small pieces and distributed it to his friends as souvenirs. Now, a few of those fragments eventually made it to the Smithsonian Museum. Today, they're in the collection of the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Years later, Edward Porter Alexander, who ended his career with the rank of general, he would puzzle over the events following the Battle of Charleston and the events of the Balloon Corps. The Confederacy did not have the resources to continue, but the Union, too, dropped their use altogether. Alexander wrote, quote, even if the observers never saw anything, they would have been worth all the cost for the annoyances and delays they caused us in trying to keep our movements out of their sight. The whole concept of flying craft and boats found service long before the American Civil War. So the Gazelle and other balloons were not the first in battle. In 1806, the first ship to serve as a carrier for airborne warcraft was the British Royal Navy's HMS Palace. The ship's crew flew kites over the French coast and dropped propaganda leaflets on Napoleon's army. Forty years later, in 1849, a ship called Volcano, an Austrian steam vessel, tethered a manned hot air balloon to his deck to bomb Venice. Unfortunately for the Austrians, but most fortunate for the Venetians, the attempt to bomb them failed because of ill-directed winds. Couldn't get over the city. However, Savannah's Trustees Garden tested gazelle was the first in American history to fly from motorized aircraft carrier. A different form of aircraft than we think today, but still an aircraft and still 
the first. It is also the first to float on a bubble of wood gas. It was made by the retort house crews at Trustee's Garden. You remember the stokers from the Yankee in the Garden, episode 9. Those same guys. The gazelle and the nimbus, the silk dress balloons, left a tragic strewn legacy that touched many families. From those of the Irish gas workers, Martin Brannon and William Harper, and to those of the Lawton and Cheese family of Georgia and South Carolina. But the aircraft of the Confederate Air Force goes down as a part of history few people remember, other than a few aircraft history nerds like me. So if you didn't already know this story, now you know. Be sure to go to History by GPS and check out our notes and merchandise. I'll find it delightful and eternally grateful if you do. I'll see you next time. Bye.